And so I think it's really important for people to understand that the number one priority with infants, children, and adolescents is proper growth and development. And so it becomes a little bit of a different ball game. So where with adults, you're trying to maximize fiber and make sure that you, you're reducing you know, the total calorie uh, intake and all of those things. With children, that's not what you're trying to do. With children, you're trying to make sure that they get enough energy, that they get enough protein, that they get enough of all of those building blocks. Do you believe that God wants you healthy? Then join me, Cersei Blue and Gigi Carter on the Healthy For My Purpose podcast, where we help you realize the relationship between your health and your purpose. We share how eating like Daniel can revolutionize your life. Through discussions and interviews, we challenge you to discover the powerful connection between plant-based nutrition, your body, and your faith. It's time. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Healthy For My Purpose. Um, We are so excited to be back here another week. I wanted to talk to you about a few things before we um, jump into this amazing episode that we have today. Uh, First of all, if you are not in the private Facebook group, Daniel Fasterbridge to Healthy Living, then you need to join today if you are on that platform. Um, Pretty much just go to our IG account um, you can get it from there, Daniel Fast to Healthy Living, or you can jump straight to Facebook, search under groups, Daniel Fast to Healthy Living, and you can grab it that way as well. We are having a blast in that group. Um, it is, we've grown a lot. We have almost 10,000 women, and like I like to say, a few good men that are in there and inspiring each other to live our healthiest life. So if you're not in that private Facebook group, I just want to challenge you to go ahead and join that today. Also, guys, I wanted to talk about something exciting that's coming up the pipe. Um, I can't tell you how many people, when you ask them, you know, what's your biggest struggle with getting healthy? And a lot of times it's around meal prep. A lot of people feel like they're caught in, in moments where they're just not prepared to eat the right foods. And so a lot of people are have always said, you know, I struggle with, you know, getting my meals together, getting meal prep done. And Gigi and I heard you guys. And so we're excited because we are coming out um, in the next week or so. Actually, if you check the IG this weekend, you will see the details for this. Or if you're already in the Facebook group, you will see the details for this coming out this weekend. But Gigi and I are offering a meal prep class, master class. So if you're saying to yourself, you know, how do I meal prep? What are some ideas? How do I structure this? And you want to roll up your sleeves and get into a meal prep prep masterclass, then you want to join this class. Pretty much you're going to get the list. You're going to get tips. You're going to actually buy your own groceries and get into a live Zoom where you are going to be making it alongside us 
getting all the tips and tricks that you need to implement this on your own going forward. So we're really, really excited about that. So like I said, check um, our IG or if you're already in the group, you will be getting some information about that in the next day or so from listening to this podcast. Um, Yeah, so we're excited about that. So let's dive into this episode, guys. I'm excited about this episode. Like I told you, we are coming to you strong and this is all about kids' health because at the end of the day, the breaking generational patterns of poor health can start with our kids. And so I really hope you guys enjoyed last week's episode with Dr. Lee Ettinger. That was an amazing talk on the role obesity plays and other things like that. But today, I really love this episode that we're going to be talking about with um, Brenda Davis because she gets into the nitty gritty of how do you make this practical? If you ever said to yourself, you know, can is it possible? Is it even possible for a child to eat plant-based, to raise a child plant-based? The answer is yes. And Brenda Davis gets into the weeds of this thing on how it's done. Um, and she does this from her popular book that just came out, I believe, a couple of years ago, Nourish, where we're talking about every stage. So if you have a baby right up into an adult teenager or a young adult, she talks about all of that in her book. And in this episode, she gets into some common pitfalls that some parents may fall into when they're trying to raise their children pant-based. Because one thing that we'll you'll find out is that the way kids eat and adult eats are two separate agendas. And so we have to be very mindful um, towards feeding a child for a child's development and not for an adult development. And that's why I love this episode so much. So if you have a child in your life that you're considering um, raising plant-based or even where you want to add more plants and remove a lot of the processed foods and junk foods that so many of our children are eating today, then you must listen to this episode. Um, So without further ado, let me introduce you to the amazing Brenda Davis. So Brenda, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you. Oh, you're welcome, Gigi. It's my pleasure. So, um, so you're absolutely a leader in the topic of plant-based nutrition. You've authored, co-authored, or contributed to 10 books that have sold over a million copies and been translated into multiple languages. Um, you are also part of a team that developed and published the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics position paper on vegetarian and vegan diets back in 2016, I believe. And in fact, there's a quote from that position paper that I have like plastered on the front page of my website about it being appropriate for all life stages, which I really appreciate uh, you being involved with that and publishing it. Thank you. So I am super honored. I'm thrilled to have you with me today. Um, And I wanted to talk specifically about raising kids on a plant-based diet. You bet. So um, the question that I get asked, and I know you get asked all the time, is can you raise a healthy, well-developed child on a whole food, plant-based, vegan diet? Uh, Absolutely. Uh, There's no question. I've seen um, numerous children from birth. They're now adults who are 
doing everything you can imagine that a child could be doing and have been so successful, brilliant, have PhDs in astrophysics, whatever, you name it. Um, but what people do need to understand is that the whole food plant-based world has really, is, was really designed to help people with disease reversal. And, 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 and I think the focus is, of a lot of that plant-based world has been on really low-fat diets and you know, just helping to pr protect people from disease or reverse diseases that they already have. When you think about 70% of the American population being overweight or obese, there's a lot of emphasis on trying to combat that. And, and so I think it's really important for people to understand that the number one priority with infants, children, and adolescents is proper growth and development. And so it becomes a little bit of a different ball game. So where with adults, you're trying to maximize fiber and make sure that you, you're reducing you know, the total calorie uh, intake and all of those things, with children, that's not what you're trying to do. With children, you're trying to make sure that they get enough energy, that they get enough protein, that they get enough of all of those building blocks that will turn a little, you know, you think a two-year-old is what, 30, 35 pounds, and, and five years later, they're, they're double that, you know, <laughs> five years later, it's, it's uh, you know, they're words of, uh, a hundred pounds and then before you know it they're a full-grown adult and in and it doesn't take a lot of time for that to happen and so you think everything that they're taking in is contributing to this amazing growth and development of the human body uh, the brain has a, a you know has a considerable amount of omega-3 fatty acids for example and we need to make sure those are supplied and so sometimes in the more restrictive uh, plant-based diets where where uh, fat is extremely limited, uh, it, that's an inappropriate diet for a child. So a child, you know, you think uh, between a year and, and say two years of age, they need about 40% of calories from fat. Once they get to be two, that goes down to about 30%, which is reasonably appropriate during most of the rest of childhood. And, and so that's not the 10% fat, no nuts and seeds, no avocado kind of diet that you want for a child. Uh, so it is a little bit of a different ballgame, but it is not only um, uh, possible to raise a very healthy plant, whole food plant-based child, I, I think you're setting them up for a lifetime of good health when you do that. Children that are raised on a plant-based diet tend to eat more fruits and vegetables. They, they tend to be more comfortable with whole grains and with beans and lentils and all of these things that we know are associated with lifelong good health. Yeah, so, so you, you bring up a great point. So specific nutrients of concern when raising a child on a plant-based diet is making sure they're getting adequate fat in their diet. Um, are there any other nutrients of concern that parents should make sure are either supplemented or fortified? 
Yeah, so, so uh, yeah, the, the, the short answer is, is yes, absolutely. So, so when we go through the list of nutrients of concern to any child, um, you know, if we, we think about it in this way, a, an omnivorous child will generally be getting less of certain nutrients than a plant-based child will, like vitamin C and potassium and folic acid or folate specifically. Things like that, they'll get less of in the plant-based child will be at an advantage. Where there are other nutrients that people who are raising children plant-based need to know that there are naturally lower levels of these nutrients in the diet. So they do need to take some care to make sure there's a reliable source of these. And so the first nutrient that people usually think of when they think of plant-based is protein. They think, oh my gosh, how's my child gonna get enough protein if they're not eating meat? But the reality is that protein is probably one of the lesser issues. You know, if you think about a toddler one to three years of age, it's unbelievable, but they only need uh, you know, probably no more than 13 grams of protein a day. It's just this tiny little amount. You would get that from two cups of soy milk, uh, not eating anything else. Uh, and yes, the, the quality of the protein in soy is the same as it is in animal products, but in some other plant foods, there's not as much lysine. So you need to put a little more focus on the higher lysine plant foods like legumes and lentils and so forth. Uh, but, but protein, truthfully, the average, you're not going to believe this, but the average uh, five-year-old child, three to five-year-old child, I forget what it was, but I think it was a three to five-year-old child, in the United States is consuming about 55 grams of protein. That's four times the RDA. There was a study done in, in Australia not so long ago, I think it was 2017 or 18, where they were showing the average child at about two to three times higher than the RDA for protein. And what they found was excessive protein intakes were associated with um, uh, increased overweight and obesity, uh, with a number of adverse health outcomes in the long term. So more protein is not necessarily better. You may need to go a little bit higher. Uh, in protein for children. So because of the digestibility of protein from plant foods. So, so we adjust and we might say for really little children add 30%. For, for you know, bigger children, maybe 20. And then for adults, maybe 10 to adjust for that digestibility factor. Uh, but still, it's not nearly as much protein as you would think it might be. Then the other nutrients uh, that deserve some consideration are, of course, for infants and children, iron. And it doesn't matter whether they're vegetarian or omnivorous or what type of diet they're on. Uh, iron deficiency is the most common micronutrient deficiency on the planet. And, and in children, uh, it can have some really serious adverse consequences. So uh, thinking of things like, um, you know, they get lethargic, they get weak, they, they, it can affect um, their growth, it can affect their cognition. So those are things that are serious. So we don't want to blow uh, uh, iron. And, and the, the number one cause of iron deficiency in babies is, is uh, early introduction to cow's milk. Uh, cow's milk is not only low in iron, but it, it can actually cause 
some intestinal bleeding and it can contribute to iron deficiency. Uh, and then in toddlers, it's drinking too much milk. So if they drink over 24 ounces of cow's milk a day, it's just, it means they're getting a, a too high of a percentage of their calories from cow's milk and there's not enough room for iron containing foods. Cow's milk is not only low in iron, it inhibits the absorption of iron. And, and the late introduction of solid foods can be an issue. So if a child is introduced uh, to solid foods at a, an age of something beyond six months, uh, generally by four to six months of age, the um, iron um, stores have really started to diminish. And so even the, the, Academy of, uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics suggests that for babies, uh, you need to, uh, by four months, be supplementing with a milligram per kilogram of iron. Uh, for premature babies, it's, it's about two milligrams per kilogram. That would be, of course, determined by a pediatrician. But there, you know, there's a the real concern for making sure they get a source of iron by the time those stores have run out. So by six months of age, you're starting to introduce solid foods. And, and so the, the order of introduction of solid foods is often a little bit dependent on wanting to get that iron in. And so, so you do hear pediatricians say, oh, meat should be the first food because of that. But it's, it's quite interesting if you, if you look at the, the amount of iron in you know, the baby meat or the strained meat or whatever that parents might be using. It's actually not nearly what uh, iron fortified infant cereal would be. So an iron fortified infant cereal, I think you need about, oh, maybe six tablespoons or so to, to meet your daily requirements. But with, with I, I calculated from the USDA uh, database, I think you needed about 79 tablespoons of baby beef. So, so, and I think it was about 50 of chicken and it was, it was just these huge amounts. It was way more than even, you know, ground lentils. So, so I think that, you know, we do want to provide that iron, but the iron fortified infant cereal is a really good choice. But it, I, I hate to, to get, you know, nitpicky here, but you probably don't want it to be rice uh, cereal, even though that's what we used for years. We used to recommend parents started with rice cereal. Um, but the reason we, we don't do that anymore is because baby rice cereal has been found to be a really quite significant source of arsenic, uh, as a lot of other rice products are. So even if it's organic, it doesn't matter. Uh, so we would recommend instead starting with uh, oatmeal or barley or one of the other uh, infant grain cereals. And then the other thing to help with the absorption of the iron in the cereal, you want to start to fairly soon add in some source of vitamin C with that cereal, which means, you know, um, some, some sort of fruit, um, strawberries or, or citrus fruits or something like that. And, and then the other, so, so, you know, and so it goes, you want to make sure as you're adding in solids, you're adding in plenty of uh, legumes, uh, beans and lentils and tofu, because and, those are the real source of, uh, sources of iron. But not only are they the sources of iron, they're the key sources of, of high quality plant-based protein and also zinc, which is a really critical nutrient for children. Little kids between one and three only need about three milligrams. Um, but it's just, a, a, it's possible that on a plant-based diet, you need a little more 
because absorption again can be a little lower because of the sort of the phytates and, and the fiber and so forth. So we, we need to make sure we're getting in those that foods from the legume family. And then the other nutrients that deserve mention, of course, are vitamin B12, vitamin D, and iodine. And, and vitamin B12 is just not a nutrient that we can, we, there is a natural, uh, reliable source of in the plant-based kingdom. So yes, different seaweeds do have some vitamin B12. The problem is, is when you dry the seaweed, sometimes that B12 turns into these, what we call inactive, uh, you know, B12 analogs. They sort of look like B12, but they don't serve as B12 in the body. So they can even attach to B12 receptor sites. So that's a, you know, crowding out real B12. So at this point in time, we shouldn't rely on any plant foods. I mean, if you're, if you're fermenting a food like tempeh in a, you know, contaminated container, it might have some B12, but the tempeh made in North America tends to be fermented in these really clean stainless steel vats. So even that's not a reliable source. So for children, you want to rely on, on fortified foods to some extent. So fortified non-dairy milks and fortified cereals and so forth can be reliable sources. But even if you do that, I would suggest that, that maybe twice a week you provide a little bit of vitamin D drops, which the amount will vary. You know, when they're little, about 250 micrograms, and that'll go to about 500 as they get older twice a week. And then um, the other option, of course, is a, is a child multivite that contains B12. And this, I, to be honest, I don't think this is a bad idea because not only are you getting the B12 in there, if you're selective, you can find a supplement with some iodine, uh, some zinc, just little bits of these things that, that kind of top you up. And if anyone's had toddlers, and I've I've, I've had toddlers and I've had, I've got grandchildren as well. And, and um, they can have, they can absolutely love a food one day and hate it the next. <laughs> they are so fickle when it comes to food. It's so funny. Um, but they can go on a food jag where, where, where they only want to eat two foods for, you know, for uh, two weeks. And, and so sometimes having that supplement can help to, to balance things out a little bit. Yeah, it's almost but, like an insurance policy, I guess. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and then the other things that you really do need to pay attention to are vitamin D and iodine. And vitamin D, you know, the Institute of Medicine says 400 IUs in the first year of life, and then I think it's 600 from one year on until you get uh, into your senior years where it's a little higher. But so 600 IUs is, is not easy to get. Uh, from food, <laughs> uh, even if you do include fortified foods. And so uh, normally we're giving, you know, children the vitamin D drops to make sure they get enough. Now it's true that if you live in a really sun sunny climate and they're really exposed to a lot of sunshine, they may not need that much. But most, um, you know, most physicians will say they that sun exposure should be somewhat limited in, in childhood. So I don't know. I think there's a balance there. I yeah. think sunshine is really important to human health, 
but you don't want to overdo it. And so providing that vitamin D, and of course, I live in Canada. Um, you know, we have probably eight months where we can't make enough vitamin D, even if we're outside. So we really do need to think about that as well. And then the other nutrient that, that comes into play, especially in a whole food plant-based diet is iodine. So iodine's a nutrient that, um, let's say in pregnancy, you have almost no source of iodine. Your soil is poor in iodine. You're on a whole food plant-based diet. Uh, your child uh, could end up with, um, you know, brain damage. That's how serious iodine deficiency is. It's the number one, um, uh, you know, preventable cause of mental retardation in children on the planet. Uh, and it's very uncommon in the developed world to see this. But when you get people who are gung-ho on making sure everything is au naturel, they don't want iodized salt, they don't want, you know, they don't want supplements and any of this stuff. The biggest sources of iodine naturally in the diet are uh, fish, eggs, um, you know, you get a little bit and then um, dairy products because we clean the teats of the cows with iodine, <laughs> the, the machinery with iodine. And so dairy ends up being a source for that reason. Now, the other huge source is seaweed. Uh, and seaweed is uh, incredibly loaded with iodine. So, but what people need to know about seaweed is let's say you've got kelp powder you know, that sprinkle or the kelp sprinkles or anything like that. Well, children need, so an adult needs about 150 micrograms of, of iodine. A child needs, it varies from about 90 to about 130 until it reaches adult range. But if you think of a very small child, um, they need a lot of iodine compared to a great big adult. And, and um, uh, they, you know, if a child needs 110 uh, micrograms, the upper limit for them might be 200 micrograms because too much iodine can cause problems with thyroid function. And so there's a very small window between what they need and what's too much. And the danger with seaweed is that what you need for 150 micrograms uh, in an adult is about a 16th of a teaspoon of brown kelp. So for a child, is that 1 20th of a teaspoon? And then what would be, what would hit 200? Well, probably 1 10th of a teaspoon. Like these are very minute amounts. So you really need to be conscious of that if you're using this stuff on a daily basis. Now, all that having been said, um, nori is different. So you know those little seaweed snacks you buy for kids or, or the, the nori that you use to wrap sushi? This is much lower in iodine. So um, a little package of seaweed snacks might be 25 micrograms, which is you know, a very good contributor to iodine intake, but it's not going to put a child over the top. They're not going to be eating eight packages in a day. So so that's a, a, a reasonable way for a plant-based child to get iodine. Now, salt is, is you know, you don't want to be overdoing salt, obviously, because salt has been associated with higher blood pressure, even in children. Um, but it's, you know, the, the sort of 
you know, the range you're looking for in a child is somewhere around 1,000 to 1,500 milligrams of, 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 um, of um, uh, sodium, basically, in a child's diet. And so it does allow for some. And, and so a quarter of a teaspoon of salt um, might provide you with 70 milligrams. And that would be a reasonable amount to use in cooking and so forth. Um, if you're doing whole food plant-based, so you could have a little bit. It also helps to take the bitter edge off some foods that kids might, kids are, are a little more sensitive to bitter tastes. And so for greens and things like that, having just that little bit of salt can make it even more palatable for them. So if you use salt in your cooking, I would suggest iodized salt. And, and I know there's a concern about, well, what about aluminum being there? You need to read the label. You can buy sea salt with iodine added. Uh, and, and you can just be careful what they're using in the, in the product. The salt that I buy doesn't have any of those things added. So, uh, so that's a, you know, a nutrient just to be aware of. And, and it's true in North America, we do have some iodine in the soil. But even if you add up the numbers for all the fruits and vegetables you're eating, you're, you're probably falling a little bit short. Okay. Now, if you're using a multivite, then yes, you're, you're, you, know, you, can, you can try to find one that does have a little bit of iodine in it. Okay. So can we go back to vitamin B12? Can you share a little more about the history of why, um, why we don't get vitamin B12 in today's plant-based diet? Yeah, well, you know, if, if you think about years and years ago, um, uh, maybe, maybe in the Paleolithic times, for example, human beings, uh, did, but for the first probably 80% of the Paleolithic period, uh, human beings didn't actually eat animal uh, products unless they found something dead lying on the side of the, you know, the river or whatever. Uh, they didn't have the, the tools uh, to hunt. And, and so they were essentially plant-based eaters. But, you know, and of course, vitamin B12, uh, it, it comes from bacteria that make vitamin B12. And so there's this, you know, there are little organisms that, that produce B12. And so it, it could actually in the environment be stuck to soil on the root of a carrot you just pulled out of the ground. It could be in the water, it, it, you know, it, it was, we don't need a lot of it. So those little bits that people would get from all of these dirty foods that they were eating naturally uh, was probably enough. Um, to, what, what's happened today is that the way that we raise animals, um, uh, it, it, we end up putting out some pathogenic bacteria into the waterways of those farms, which seem to work their way into uh, the water that's used for irrigation on plants. And so sometimes you'll hear about outbreaks of food poisoning from spinach or, you know, apple juice or whatever the case may be. And, and the source of that contamination is most often um, animal farms where pathogenic bacteria has gotten into uh, the waterways. And so we've become pretty good at getting rid of pathogenic bacteria in our foods. And, and, and when we do that, we also get rid of B12 producing bacteria. 
And, and so my, my feeling is this, um, you know, if just consider this, the Institute of Medicine recommends that everyone over 50 years of age get vitamin B12 from the same place of people who are entirely plant-based get it from fortified foods and supplements because they're unable to cleave the B12 off the protein it's bound to in animal foods. It's bound to protein in animal products. And so it's not just people eating plant-based that have to be worried about B12. It's, it's people who are over 50. It's, it, it, you know, it's anyone that can't, you know, doesn't produce enough hydrochloric acid or doesn't produce enough enzymes to cleave it off the animal products. And so I think we, we need to recognize that in this day and age, it's actually a good idea for everybody to be getting B12, either from a combination of fortified foods and or uh, supplements. And that just makes sense. And so for people eating plant-based, we do, we do need to just be cautious that we're using uh, those foods. But it doesn't, you know, the lack of B12 in plant foods doesn't prove that, you know, plant foods are somehow inferior. They're, they're just not contaminated with B12 producing bacteria because of our standards of sanitation. Okay, so it sounds like there's not necessarily an upper limit or toxicity that people should be concerned about when supplementing with vitamin B12 as there would be like with iodine, for example. Yes, exactly. So there, there is no upper limit set by the Institute of Medicine for vitamin B12 because uh, it doesn't seem like people get adverse effects very readily. Now, there are some people that, that seem to, and this is a very small percentage, um, get acne uh, when they take uh, big amounts of B12. Uh, there have been the odd reports of, of different things in you know, case reports and such, but for most people, let's say you take 1,000 micrograms of B12 twice a week. Well, you probably absorb maybe 1%. So in some people, 0.5%, in some people, 1.5%. But you're absorbing a very, very tiny uh, percentage of, of that. So you're excreting most of the B12 that you're taking in the form of a supplement. Now, the smaller the amount in the supplement, the greater the percentage you will absorb. So that, you know, but still, it's, it's, uh, it's really not a concern. Uh, for people. All right. So what have you seen as common mistakes that parents make when raising their child on a plant-based vegan diet? Well, mistake number one is for parents who um, we, and this isn't something we, we see a lot of, but there are a lot of um, recipes on the internet for formula. For if, if you look at the ingredients on um, on formula, it's just horrifying to be honest. It, you look at it and you go, it's 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 you know oil, uh, it's sugar, and it's not you know it's not natural sources of those things. It's like cheap oil and cheap sugar and and concentrated protein, a bunch of vitamins and minerals added. Um, but the formula, commercial formula on the market is very, very carefully controlled so that it has in it what a baby needs to grow. 
when you, for whatever reason, if you're not, I mean, ideally we want to breastfeed a baby for two to four years or however long uh, it works for both of you. That's ideal. Uh, and that's normal human weaning for, for human infants is two to four years. And so that's ideal. Um, if you can't do that, or if you've adopted a baby or whatever the reason you, you've had a double mastectomy, whatever it is that you can't breastfeed uh, or you choose not to breastfeed, then you're looking for something that would be as nutritious as possible. So I can understand how tempting it is for people to create a formula that would be made out of whole natural foods. And I'll just tell you this, it is a formula for disaster. Don't do it. Uh, and, and please don't do it. Uh, every case of severe malnutrition um, that I've seen or, or the vast majority of cases I've seen can be traced back to these homemade formulas. In, in some communities, there were a couple communities, there was macrobiotic community and raspberry community. There were different communities where we saw some really severe malnutrition. These formulas had probably about 17 calories per 100 mils compared to 70 for human milk. Uh, th this is really, really risky stuff. If you must use something other than breast milk, and I mean, if you can get it from a breast milk bank, that's wonderful. But if you must use something other than breast milk, you must use commercial infant formula, unfortunately. Once a child has started on solid foods, then you know you can start to introduce all kinds of wonderful things. But, um, you know, and it's one of the reasons that you really do want to be breastfeeding, if at all possible. Uh, there's just so, so many advantages to breastfeeding over formula feeding. But, but if you have to go that route, you have to go commercial infant formula as far as I'm concerned. Seen too many sad stories. So um, where were we? What was We were that? talking about mistakes that parents make. Oh when, yeah, so yeah. that's mistake number <laughs> Mistake number two is to assume that um, if a 10% fat diet is good for preventing disease in an adult, it's the gold standard for all plant-based eaters and that's what they should be raising their children on. Uh, and what happens quite often, not always, but quite often, is children fail to thrive. They just don't get enough calories. You know, children have these tiny little stomachs. When they're little, they should be receiving food every two to three hours. So breakfast, snack, lunch, snack, dinner, snack. And, and when they're uh, on a very, very low fat diet, it's hard to concentrate enough calories in the tiny amounts that they can eat. They need more fat. They need more fat for their brain. They need more fat for their growth. And so this very low fat diet is inappropriate for a growing child. You do need to be including nut and, nut and seed butters and creams and avocados. And you don't have to include oils. Um, you can include a little bit of some high quality oils if, you're, if you feel you need that. You don't need to. Fats can come from whole foods like tofu and, and like I say, the nuts and seeds and avocados and so forth. And that's fine, but you do need some of those higher fat foods. 
And, and above and beyond that, parents can go too high in fiber for, for some small children. So when you're feeding, um, you know, whole grains and beans and lentils, and it can fill again the small stomach before they're getting enough calories. And so sometimes you need to moderate the fiber by including some lower fiber foods like tofu is a wonderful lower fiber food. In some cases, it makes sense to use some um, refined pasta or something like that to, to provide those extra calories, especially if you're putting a you know, legume-based sauce on top. Uh, so there are some ways that you can modify a little bit to, to moderate the intake of fiber. Um, and, and beyond that, I think those are really key. The other thing that we still see is, is children love starches and they love, you know, white pasta and bread and, and all of these carbohydrate rich foods with, which aren't so high in protein and iron and zinc and all of those things. And so when the diet becomes a, you know, a, a, a sort of pasta and bagel diet, uh, it's not adequate. And so we really need to be conscious of that as well. Providing our children with a variety of foods. And even if they go on a food jag, to be sure to keep introducing. I have a four-year-old granddaughter and a 10-month-old granddaughter right now. And, and my four-year-old, um, you know, we were at the park the other day and, and my daughter had packed her a snack. And the snack was one bag was uh, kidney beans and one bag was camut berries, and one bag was, um, you know, little chunks of vegetables, and one was little chunks of fruit. And all those bags, when they were put out, the first thing she took was the beans, you know, and she just started eating those beans one by one, just like a finger food. Uh, camut berries, she loves, it's a, an intact whole grain, and she just loves to eat those. And so there's these kinds of foods that you wouldn't even think to give beans as a snack. But, you know, it's always either black beans or kidney beans or some sort of big bean that she can pick up with her fingers. And, um, they, and they, you know, she, she loves them as snacks. So people, I think parents need to get a little creative with what they're providing their children. Oh, the other thing my daughter does, which I did as well when she was little, um, is I use iron fortified infant, I used infant cereal in pancakes, bread, cookies, muffins, to add that a little bit of extra iron. So she told me what she does is she uses in any recipe she's doing, she uses one third iron fortified infant cereal and two thirds flour, oat flour, whatever it is. So she made uh, for Mother's Day these vegetable, beautifully designed vegetable pies with the, you know, the swirling vegetables. But in the crust, she used one third baby oatmeal. Which, oh. And you would have never in a million years known. So again, you can get creative in those ways to add. So if you're making porridge, you can add, you're making oatmeal, you add baby oatmeal to it to, to, to get that extra iron spike of iron in there. That's a great tip. Yeah, just to kind of hide it in there. But what about parents who have maybe older kids, let's say they've decided to adopt a whole food plant based diet, and you know, their 10 year old or 12 year old has already 
kind of made their decision about the types of foods that they like. How do you, what tips do you have for parents who are trying to kind of nudge their kids into that plant-based direction? Yeah, so, so when, I, when my husband and I became pretty much vegan, our kids were four and one at the time. So we didn't have that transition of, you know, a, a preteen or a teen. But my own personal feeling is that your food choices really need to come from you. And, and so what, you know, what I would do as a parent is I would say, you know, we're, we're making this transition in our diet. And these are the reasons we're doing that. And I, I'd really love for you to see this film that influenced me. This is why I decided to, I want to do this. I want you to understand why. This isn't something that, you know, was a whim. Uh, this is carefully thought out. And we absolutely respect your choice to eat whatever you want when you're, you know, when you're at a friend's house, when you're out, you know, uh, selecting food somewhere. But at home, this is what we're going to be serving. And, and then you have a decision to make whether or not you, depending on the age of your child, you may say to your child, I don't mind if you want to have salmon sandwiches or, or whatever chicken once in a while, but you will have to prepare it yourself. We won't be preparing that with our meals anymore. So that could be another way of handling it, that you need to get engaged in food preparation if you really want to bring. Some parents will say, I don't want those foods in my house anymore. I just can't. I just can't. Uh, and, and so you draw the line and say, this is what's allowed in our home. I had a good friend who ended up doing this and, and her husband was not on board at all. So they ended up with a compromise of allowing dairy products and eggs in the house, but not any animal flesh foods. And, and, uh, but everything she cooked was vegan. And so if they wanted those things, they had to prepare them themselves. And so there's a lot of different ways of figuring this out, but I think it's really important for parents not to say to a child, this is what you're going to do and you're not allowed to choose this when you're at a friend's or whatever. I think we have to give them, um, you know, there's a, there's a, a saying by Ellen Sater who wrote a child of mine, I think years and years ago, and she keeps doing refreshers. And, and I know that you're very familiar with this as well, but parents are responsible um, for what food is given to a child, where it's given, when it's given. Your child is responsible for um, how much they're going to eat or even whether they're going to eat at all. And, and so you need to remember that. I think, you know, a, a child um, needs to have some responsibility there. And depending on the age of the child, I think allowing them to make their own choices when they're outside, at least when they're outside of your home is reasonable. And I did this with my own kids. And I remember uh, both of them sort of veering out and trying to, you know, I remember my, my son in particular, when he was about, I don't know, four, four or five years old, he was at a friend's house and they were barbecuing and he ate what they were barbecuing, which was some sort of pork roast or something like that. And he came home and he asked me, um, he told me what it was and he said, what, what kind of animal did that come from? And I told him and he 
just collapsed on the floor and cried for like three hours um, and said, I will never, ever, ever do that again. And then he just kept yelling out, I ate a pig, I ate a pig. I can't believe I ate a pig. How could I have eaten a pig? It was just traumatic for him. And so he owned it and he came to that decision. I'm not doing that again. And he never did. That was it for him. Uh, and so different children, And but he did have, you know, he'd be at a friend's, he'd have pizza with cheese and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. And, and when he was about 13, um, he came, he said to me, you know, I'm not eating dairy anymore. I'm just, I, I don't care if I'm out at friends or whatever. I'm just not doing it anymore. I just, I can't bear what they do to cows. It's just, I don't want to have anything to do with that anymore. And so he owned it. And, and I think it's in that way, it's, it's, it's preferable, uh, for their, you know, for their mental health and for, for their own, a uh, feeling of uh, auto, um, of autonomy to have that to own that, um, but I know everybody's different in that. But that's my my feeling. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a great story because it you know it, you're right. I mean, everybody goes down this path for a different reason. Um, some do it for more than one reason, of course. But mm -hmm. um, you know, when you're talking about the, the treatment of animals and animal, from an animal rights perspective, it, it, the conversation around the family changing would, would be different than if it were just solely for, you know, health reasons to lower the cholesterol of dad or something like that. So, um, okay, my final question. <laughs> so my final question for you um, uh, actually has to do with schools. So um, one of the, another question I get from parents, um, and I've e even been invited um, here locally where I live uh, to get involved with the schools and the food that's served at schools. Um, what can parents do to influence what their child is served at school beyond packing their own lunch? Well, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. This is definitely not my area of expertise, especially in the U.S. school system, but I, I have a friend, Amy Hamlin. Do you know Amy? I do. Well, I know her, um, not personally, but we connected through social media and we've exchanged yeah, notes. Yeah, the Healthy yeah. School Lunch Program in, in New York. Uh, and, and so there, there are groups, you know, sprinkled here and there throughout the, the states and, and Canada as well, who are working really hard to try to improve uh, the, the, what the foods that children are served and there. I believe that they've got it so that there has to be a plant-based option for children. And, and so I think that, I don't think that we're gonna turn, you know, school lunches into vegan lunches anytime soon, but to me, it's absolutely reasonable to expect that a plant-based option will be offered. And so as parents, I think that, um, you know, I would consider um, uh, it, trying to, to do things that would be a service to the community. So, so going into the classrooms and getting children familiar with beans and growing vegetables and getting them interested in foods, teaching them about different cultures, about what the people eat in different in different areas that the, the plant-based foods, and then getting them to taste the foods. 
and then getting them added to the lunch menu and, and maybe helping out with uh, the, the development of recipes that are that are simple and are delicious to children that have passed the taste tests in the classrooms. And so this takes some work, obviously, on the part of parents to initiate that kind of a you know, that kind of change within the system. And, you know, you might start small, say, you know, once a week that there will be this option and, and, um, and then gradually increase it so that every day a week, there's a plant-based option. And, um, and hopefully, um, you know, it will in influence other children, especially if they're learning about it in the classroom before it gets offered at school lunches. Okay, great. Well, Brenda, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you. Oh, thank you, Gigi. I appreciate you too. And I'm uh, grateful for what you're doing. And I'm excited to hear about your YouTube channel and <laughs> all the things, you, all of the great blogs you have. It's really wonderful. And it's nice to see you again. Great seeing you as well. And I look forward to your book. Please do uh, let me know, or hopefully I'll see something when it comes out and I'll be yeah, sure to share so it. So let me tell you about it. So this, this, so that the, the listeners know. So the book is called Nourish and it's actually already available on Amazon for pre-order. It's due June 30th. So we're, we're, we're scrambling now to get it done and it will be available uh, November. And I can't remember if it's November 13th, but somewhere mid-November before Christmas. And this book is written by a pediatrician by the name of Reshma Shaw and myself. And so, so the combination of pediatrician, dietitian, uh, I think that this book will be a very valuable resource. And right now, there, there aren't so many resources for plant-based families. So I think this will fill a bit of a void. And uh, it includes recipes. We go through the life cycle. We go through all the nutrients. We go through the reasons why people might want to be making this kind of a shift. So it's quite a comprehensive little book. I'm going to go in and pre-order my copy today. Oh, thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Brenda. And oh, uh, I'm out. we'll be in touch, I'm sure. You bet. Take <laughs> care and stay safe. Okay. You too. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the Healthy for My Purpose podcast. We hope you enjoyed the community and are walking away empowered and encouraged to live your healthiest life for your God-ordained purpose. You can connect with us on Facebook and Instagram to enjoy fellowship with like-minded women. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this on iTunes. Until we meet again, keep honoring your body for your purpose.